one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Oh, a pediatric infectious disease doc. Well, I'm glad you bring (laughs) that up, Santos, because we're going to combine a couple things this week. One of them is going to be an infectious disease, but it's not (laughs) enough to an infectious disease. We're still in Halloween month depending on when I release this. (laughs) Dude, I think your Halloween month goes 11 months out of the year, minus July for Comic-Con, which is kind of like Halloween. Yeah, but there's no candy or horror movies in July. Just costumes. (laughs) There's so much candy in July. Really? Oh, well. Yeah, yeah, you're you're a grown man. You can buy- Damn right I can. (laughs) (laughs) all of a sudden i just hear like the microphone slam into the ground (laughs) pitter patter of feet slam (laughs) where'd he go he went to ralph's well we're gonna talk about a mysterious infectious disease that still hasn't really been solved today or has it we're bringing it back early this year one of our favorite mini series in our show which is of course around the world in 80 plagues ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, you with your mouth organ <laughs> look folks Those of you who are supporting us, we thank you. A little more financial support and we'll get a soundboard with real effects instead of whatever pops into my head. (laughs) Please, please, please get us a Patreon because 
It really hurts my ear holes when I have to hear that. Oh, my mouth organ hurts your ear holes? Are those scientific terms? So there was this illness. <laughs> All right. You're right. So Santosh, yeah. let, me, let me paint an appropriately spooky picture for you before we reveal the name of the plague. Mm. Unless, of course, our listening audience just looked at the title, in which case, well, surprise! But here we go. A hundred years ago, an epidemic swept across the world that killed over a million people while affecting numerous others before mysteriously disappearing from the face of the earth as fast as it had arrived. Sounds terrifying, right? What if surviving this disease didn't mean recovery, but being trapped inside your body or suffering psychiatric and behavioral changes that would leave you unable to move or to speak, but your thoughts intact? Uh, So this sounds like a scary version of polio uh, is one to think of. And then we are suffering from, you know, smaller bouts of this disease, which is coming every two years, a disease called acute flaccid myelitis, which is a a modern disease that we recognize. Um, It sounds a little bit like that. It does. And when I'm talking about a disease a hundred years ago that killed over a million people, well, that would put us in 1918. What What disease was killing millions of people in 1918? Uh, sure, flu. Flu was the big pandemic. Yeah, the, as the so-called Spanish flu. Yeah, which, uh, as I always love to remind our listeners, not actually originating in Spain, but called the Spanish flu by French newspapers because they were the only newspapers that were being operated at the time. And so they went ahead and slandered Spain. This epidemic began during World War One and spread around the world in lockstep with the flu. Some patients would simply fall asleep. Some would die in their sleep. Some awoke months later, healthy. Others awoke but were left with lasting neurologic problems. But this curious illness provided significant insights into brain function that still have relevance today. Santosh, would you care to draw back the curtain and reveal this week's 80 Plagues? Oh, yeah. So, Encephalitis Lethargica. That's the the name that was given at the time, uh, you know, about 100 years ago. And still, this is the same name that's given to this disease, uh, not because, you know, it hasn't been quote unquote updated or anything, but actually because we haven't really seen it's like since. Yeah. Uh, well, and one of the things that we should mention early on is this is also referred to as the sleepy sickness, um, different from the sleeping sickness. Oh, oh, sure. That you'd see in Africa, which is a slow neurodegenerative disorder you know, that's consequent to trypanosomes, uh, African, African trypanosomiasis. Yeah. So curiously, really the only people suffering from sleepy sickness or encephalitis lethargica usually are elderly nursing home patients 
who appear frozen in time, like Captain America in a block of ice. Oh, now, that's kind before of it was called encephalitis lethargica, which literally translates to tired from brain inflammation. Encephalitis, brain tired inflammation, brain. lethargica. I have a lot of sleeping. tired brain. Uh, but this used to be called von Economo <laughs> disease. It was named for Konstantin von Economo, a Greek, an Austrian-born Greek man mm-hmm. who, completely unrelated to everything else we're talking about, was one of the first balloon pilots. Ooh, you can uh, fly a helium balloon. balloon. Not like interesting. Helium balloon. And his way of well, getting in down, 1907, Konstantin von Economo became interested in aviation and ballooning, learned how to fly, and received a balloon pilot license. And mm-hmm. then, for the, from 1910, he was president of the Osterreicher Aero Club for the first for, for the next 16 years, and then got his pilot's license a few years later. Then in World War One, served in the Air Force on the Asanzo Front. And sometime during that period, he also ended up writing about the findings of this disease, encephalitis lethargica, in April of 1917, a few short years before it came an epidemic affecting millions, but a few years after it had first come to the attention of academics and medical professionals. So he was just ballooning around, looking down on people and said, hey, wake up. (laughs) So let's kind of present this as, as the mystery it was at the time. It was initially a pretty puzzling but seemingly simple disorder. Victims would have a little bit of general unease, And then they would come in to the doctor complaining of double vision, a lot of fatigue and sleepiness, and sometimes a mild fever. But the sleep that gave the disorder its name of sleepy sickness was a little bit unusual. The body presented all the signs of slumber, but the sleeper remained aware of their surroundings. Oh, okay. So it is a little bit like they were locked in. The only difference is in complete locked-in syndrome, they're not sleepy, they're not fatigued or tired, um, but they can't move. But in this case, you're saying they're also tired. Yes. So the, the lack of ability to move came more from fatigue than true muscle paralysis. So Economo described three different kinds of encephalitis lethargica. One was a hyperkinetic form, characterized by rapid motor movements, uncontrollable twitching, insomnia, and general restlessness, like almost like an extreme form of ADHD. And I know what you're thinking. How can a disorder called sleepy sickness also have insomnia associated with it? So not dissimilar from narcolepsy, but whereas narcolepsy tends to be provoked by excitability or sudden starts. You know, it always makes me think of those sleepy goats. Yeah, that's the one, like the head nodding, right? So you get that, uh, right. kind of syndrome. So this would have, you know, spastic kind of hyperkinetic movements, a lot of energy, but then you'd sleep. And the second form was an akinetic form where you're not moving at all. And that was very similar to Parkinson's with a dramatic reduction in muscle strength and a lot of difficulty moving. And the third form was the most like narcolepsy, 
which had the double vision, that's what I described earlier, with the patient falling asleep at random times, even while walking, and this could progress to a comatose state, and those who survived it could be left mute. So again, the sleep that gave the disorder, the body presented all the same signs of slumber, but the sleeper remained aware, and if you made it through this brief period of sleepiness and double vision and fever, your recovery was largely an illusion as this ended up being not three different forms of one disease, but multiple stages of the same disorder. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so, and this must have been a little worrisome at the time because, you know, around this time and maybe a little, you know, before you had Cook's postulates where people were trying to determine a disease based on one etiology causing a lot of the same symptoms. And although there were some similar presentations, it looks like there were some kind of discrete syndromes going on here that didn't have perfect overlap. Right. And that's kind of what made this so difficult to to discover. So the first phase would be that mild fever and, you know, symptoms that really could pass for anything. It also could have passed for infection with the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep calling it the Spanish flu so you can localize it to the time period. At least already not really Spanish. (laughs) I think that's fair. The second phase of this disease was marked by a general loss of concentration and interest in life, giving kind of this vague sensation that the patient was not the person they had once been, that they were more like a hollowed out husk. And as we learned much later after the fact, this was because localized degeneration of neurons was happening in the first phase and continuing through the second. And, you know, their their brains weren't being turned into Swiss cheese, but the ability to motivate themselves and move was rapidly decreasing. And this second phase could last anywhere from a few days to 30 years. Yeah, it, at, at that time, it was like, it could have been a lifetime of this thing. I mean, this was kind of like a lobotomy on a molecular scale, right? Or on a cellular scale. So in a lobotomy, and we forget, you know, how much of quote unquote us are just, you know, chemoelectrical connections in the brain, our personality and who quote unquote we are. But if you destroy that little, you know, that, prefrontal gyrus, that little bit that arcs down, you know, right where your sinuses are, right by where your nose is, and you destroy that part either mechanically or, you know, with an inflammatory process like this, um, you'll all of a sudden, you won't be depressed. It's actually some of these victims found it a lot like a lobotomy, kind of just like, you know, that meh feeling that like, I don't really care. You know, it's all good. It's all copacetic kind of feeling. Yeah, the whatever, whatever's happening, it doesn't matter. I like to call it the the 2019 feeling where nothing matters anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe this disease is co- is making a horrible comeback in a way that we never really understand. Now the difference is this actually had kind of different presentations based on age, so. Following this second phase, the third phase is what we would call post-encephalitic Parkinsonism. And, you know, we'll abbreviate it PEP. 
And calling it pep is laughable because pep is the one thing that these folks largely lacked. Young sufferers between (laughs) 15 and 35 years of age who had pep were in for decades of disability. But those under 15, so the true pediatric patients, the second period was marked by some severe changes of behavior and character that bordered on the psychopathic. So children between five and 10 years old might merely begin to irritate with being clingy, constantly holding, tugging, touching, um, and they'd have impaired concentration, incessant restlessness, and a need for noise and a lack of consideration for others, which is why, again, you can think of it as an extreme form of ADHD. But as these children grew in strength, their impulsiveness began to escalate in violence, and they posed a danger to themselves and others. And these included behaviors like cruelty to anyone who crossed them, destructiveness, lying, and self-mutilation, including in one particularly horrible example, plucking out of their own eyeballs. Yeah, this is, again, you're destroying, you know, very particular parts of the brain and the frontal lobe, which have to do with inhibition. Um, you know, we all, I think we've spoken on this channel about Phineas Gage mm-hmm. in the past, Josh, where, you know, the rod was shoved right through the middle of the brain, disrupted part of, you know, the, you know, premotor cortex, that frontal cortex, where, uh, you know, you just, you chip away at parts that you don't even know are super important that stops you from being an ass in public all the time. But in this case, you know, those kids lost those impulses that told them to like calm down and chill out. You know, it's the the opposite of the Right, this is that high kinetic form. And it really only seemed to affect the young. In addition, here's a neat thing about these these kind of cruelty behaviors and they'd beat people up or they'd steal, but it wasn't criminality for the sake of criminality. They might do the equivalent of knocking over a liquor store and then 20 minutes after the robbery, just throw the money away because they just had this impulsive incorrigibility to to do something, to be in motion, to destroy with a lack of inhibition. So they weren't being turned into, you know, they weren't being led to criminal types of behavior. It's they had such poor control that their behavior became criminal. And when they reached adolescence, these behaviors began to manifest inappropriate and excessive sexuality, including including sexual assault without regard for age or gender. And this was a disease that epidemiologically predominantly was affecting women. Wow. Now, that is that is kind of a strange thing when it comes to infection. Infections, by and large, you'll usually have a bias towards now, men rather the than the one women. slightly, I guess, dubious upside to this disease is when we talk about these older patients, the ones who were frozen and had this kind of locked in mutism, not moving, and you know, you'd think they'd be depressed, but that meh feeling that we described earlier, the apathy often meant that people who suffered from this disease weren't really bothered either by their illness or the fact that the remainder of their lives would be spent in an institution. So it'd be locked in, but they'd be like, meh, what are you going to do? So, and that's kind of, it's a scary thought, right? Like they didn't, they didn't care uh, that, you know, that they were stuck or whatever. Is there anything else you can tell us about sort of the 
the general pathology and the symptoms of this disease? Or is that all we know? This mystery of, well, you'd get either, you'd get a little bit of a fever, some double vision, and some sleepiness, and then become super hyper or practically catatonic. Can you add anything to that? You know, that post-encephalitic Parkinsonism that you were talking about, you know, where they actually saw lesions in the substantia nigra, um, which are part of the the uh, basal ganglia, this system that we don't even know is working all the time, but it's that system that allows your movements to be smooth and even and coordinated. We know that we saw in the, the post-encephalitic Parkinsonism, we know that we were able to compare the the people in autopsy, the lesions that we saw there, with the understanding of Parkinson's that we have nowadays, which is not necessarily post-infectious. We we don't know why, you know, there's some people who develop Parkinson's and some don't. Um, but we were able to see similar state uh, lesions in that substantia nigra, the cells that make the dopamine in the basal ganglia that help us have smooth and coordinated movements. The rest of it, though, you know, unfortunately, we don't have as much uh, information on uh, the actual, you know, the brain slices and imaging and that kind of a thing, because, you know, there was a lot of technology which was missing in the early 1900s. So we don't know what exactly was the cause. But we do have something new a little bit later in well, 2004. Before we, before we get to that, so let's. I'm going to throw on a couple additional comments. You're absolutely right that this okay. had a lot in common with Parkinson's disease. And in fact, those autopsies really helped to localize the small region at the base of the brain, the substantia nigra, that later led to a lot of the Parkinson's work. So this, this phase of disease and the autopsies performed on it enabled the discovery of the essential lesion that we know is associated with Parkinsonism, which is, of course, that loss of dopamine neurons. However, different from Parkinson's disease, when they did the autopsies, they found a whole bunch of neurofibrillary tangles distributed throughout the brain. Oh, oh, I see. Okay, so these these are the same types of lesions, neurofibrillary tangles, that we see in several types of dementia, including right. Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So neurofibrillary tangles more like Alzheimer's, but lesions in the substantia nigra like Parkinson's. So again, not like any disease that had been discovered or really known to date. And as we mentioned earlier, due to their close proximity in, in timing, the Spanish flu was initially linked to the to the encephalitis lethargica outbreak and felt at the time to be an autoimmune response that killed off certain neurons in the brain. But given the complete difference in the body systems affected and the only connection between them being that they appeared around the same time, that's been largely ruled out as a cause. So if now I know we don't have our our yeah. crew neurologist with us. But if you had to hazard a guess, Santosh, what would you think is causing this? The plague kind of look for it, right? Meaning that it was passed around from person to person or people that were in close proximity to one another. Um, it seemed to follow the pattern of an infectious disease. It is very possible that this is either due to an active infection. So that means 
you know, a bacteria or a virus or even a parasite came in and actively invaded and destroyed cells and caused fibrillary tangles to form. Um, or there was something called a post-infectious phenomenon where, and, and sometimes those are autoimmune, sometimes they're inflammatory, but in those diseases, you get an infection, the immune system either gets tricked or tripped up or hyperactivated and attacks tissues that wouldn't normally be attacked. So it fits that pattern. But again, I don't know if we necessarily have a, a singular etiology that we can pin on all And of that's why even today, this is still kind space. of a mystery. So now we're still operating on this immune response, this autoantibody theory. So why don't you tell us about this study from 2004 that may finally be shedding some light yeah, this was really cool. When I took a look at this, um, I thought you were going to tell me that, you know, like this big reveal, like, ah, it was strep all along, ha, 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 <laughs> type of thing. So one of the diseases we know that causes neurological problems rarely as a post-infectious syndrome is group A streptococcus, or, or um, sometimes called strep pyogenes, or what a lot of our listeners might know of as strep throat. So for everybody listening out there, we don't treat strep throat just to treat the strep throat. Honestly, if you've got a sore throat and you swab it and you find group A strep, that's not what's going to hurt you. That, that sore throat will get better on its own. There are two different entities which can happen afterwards. One is called a non-pyogenic disease, um, and the most famous of that is rheumatic fever. And the second set of complications is pyogenic, or an abscess, like a peritonsillar or a parapharyngeal abscess, where the bacteria actually erodes um, into the spaces of your neck and causes a big abscess to form. That's actually what we're trying to prevent. Otherwise, um, strep throat will resolve by itself. And actually, it really will before the age of three. It won't cause any horrible sequelae. And after the age of 21, it tends to cause little to no problems. But rheumatic fever, one of the rare complications of rheumatic fever, one of the rare symptoms, is called Sydenham's chorea. And Sydenham's chorea is a very unique, weird, hyperkinetic disease um, and uh, dyspraxic disease also, where your, your fingers keep moving. Um, we, we call it piano player's fingers. They wiggle like that. People will also have trouble walking. They'll almost be walking a little bit like Huntington's disease. So chorea or chorea is uh, the Latin term for dancing. So they're kind of staggering, drunken dance type movements. Luckily, the vast majority of kids with Sydenham's chorea, well, which is a manifestation of rheumatic fever, they'll get better on their own. And we know that it's correlated with group A streptococcal infection. We have a, a really good correlation uh, between getting group A strep and then getting rheumatic fever. But what we don't understand is why in that small sliver of patients, those kids get chorea, an even tinier minority of them will have lasting neurological problems, and then others get better. Um, and so here's... Here's the thing. With this study, John Oxford, when he published his paper, he was studying the results of 20 current patients with the disease. It hasn't completely disappeared, but it has not infected anywhere near the numbers it did 
back in the early 1900s. And it hasn't gone on to be like in an epidemic way either. So we've seen sporadic cases. Right. And we still don't know why it became an epidemic when it did. So there's still a lot of, you know, mystery surrounding this and confusion. But he was studying 20 current patients with the disease and noted that half of them complained of sore throats before the disease started more strongly presenting. Okay. He then did what I spend every day doing for this podcast and began poring over old records just trying to be like, hmm, I wonder, is there a link to this, this, or this? But he did it without all the cartoon and pop culture references. So, you know. <laughs> Although we can't be sure of that, right? Because he wasn't using a recording device at the time. Right. That's I document my scientific process for all of you, kind of, to see in the show notes. Um, <laughs> but he found that the sore throat in every case of his patients had been for, caused by a very rare form of streptococcus, which we will name a little bit. Come up with your own name if you like. Let's see if you're better at picking names than the scientists. <laughs> Once the researcher discovered this, he began poring over old records of people who had been infected with this disease and found that during the early 20th century epidemic, a large proportion of patients also reported sore throats. And the eureka moment came when they found that diplococcus microbes had been documented among the patients, which is a rare form of streptococcus. Yeah, it's a it's a cousin. Um, yeah, diplococci. Sorry, every time I say diplococci, I think of diplodocus, <laughs> <laughs> like tiny little dinosaurs in your throat, like marching through the. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so diplococcus, it's a round bacterium. Streptococcus means chains of bacteria. Diplococcus is recognized in olden times as a separate genus, but it's actually not recognized anymore. The term diplococcus is a, uh, it's a descriptive term rather than a taxonomic term. It basically means pairs of circles. Or Now that we yeah. have kind of this rough correlation, we think we know what may be causing it, but we're still not sure. Let's talk about steps that were taken mm-hmm. for treatment. You know, back in the 1920s, German neurologist Felix Stern examined hundreds upon hundreds of these patients, and he pointed out that this disease would happen chronically. As we said, early symptom, sleepiness or wakefulness. The second symptom, an oculogyric crisis. Your eyes would move in all sorts of crazy directions. The third symptom would be recovery, followed by these Parkinson-like little steps, masked faces, lack of movement. And if patients of Stern began to follow this general course, he would call their disease encephalitis lethargica. So the first thing he did was experiment with the serum of survivors of the first phase. So when they're in folks who were, he would take their blood from folks in the third phase who looked like they were recovering and inject a purified version of that blood into people with early symptoms to see what would happen. So he vaccinated patients with early stage symptoms and told them it might be successful. Okay. Not super ethical, but that's all right. He was then driven to suicide during the Holocaust by the German state and all research and whether or not it had 
any meaningful effect was lost to the winds of history. Uh, fucking Holocaust. God damn it. We've lost a lot of knowledge over the years from, you know, lone researchers whose notes just for one or another were gone. Yeah, yeah. And thankfully, you know, in some of those cases, we've been able to rediscover, but those success stories are actually fewer and far between the failures. Now, in patients who are suffering from a hyperkinetic form of the disease, even today, certain steroids have proven partially effective in small studies and have been put forward as a suggested course of treatment. But that's only for the ones who have these spastic chorea lichens, those who are trapped in their own bodies with what we call akinetic mutism, meaning they're, they don't talk, they don't move, they just have that complete meh feeling. Steroids don't do anything for them, but they do help the people with spastic movements be less spastic. That, and that's interesting. We view this syndrome and, you know, we may be wrong, Josh. We may be wrong that, you know, these separate mysteries, um, which have been kind of put under the umbrella of a single syndrome, we may in fact be dealing with different syndromes with different underlying etiologies. But if, if things are lumped together and you say, oh, you know, a treatment should work for this, then generally a treatment should work somewhat for all cases, you know, to at least some degree. It's very interesting that there are some like absolute non-responders. It probably tells us that a, either that these are actually different diseases, um, or B, the, the end syndrome is kind of the same, but the how they got there. So the, the mechanism changes. Causes, right. The underlying mechanism, the initial causes are actually disparate. So it'd be as if you were infected with a bacteria. If you catch it at the bacterial stage, you can treat with antibiotics. But once the bacteria have left their lasting scars you have to change your mode of treatment because the method by which the disease progresses has changed. Right. And that's, that is important as to whether you're treating active inflammation versus if you're treating or trying to treat just a dead cell. Like you can't resurrect a lost neuron, but perhaps if the neuron is still alive and kicking and you just have inflammation surrounding it, something like steroids would help. That's the now, by the time we hit the 1960s, patients from the original outbreak did get a chance to get small movement back for the first time in decades. These cryogenically frozen elderly people sitting in nursing homes were being given a dose of the drug, the brand new drug, Levodopa. And this was documented in the film sure. Awakenings, uh, written by Oliver Sacks and starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. Yeah, Robert De Niro is the patient and Robin Williams is the doctor. Beautiful film, really good um, book. But they did cut out kind of a lot of the finer details of the story, and they really should have just gone with the book because here's the problem. Uh, in the movie, I think it ends with, spoiler alert for, you know, a movie 30 years old. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> gets this injection of levodopa and all of a sudden decides to go out for a walk. He can move again. He can kind of be there. And I think the movie ends on kind of this happy note where all these patients who had been stuck frozen with encephalitis get their awakenings. Da -da 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 -da. Not only does, you know, their shaking and the masked face and their tremor start to improve. I mean, 
like a light switch. Um, but they're able to talk and move and interact again, which is another function of the basal ganglia. So the cruel twist of fate, though, is after only a few weeks of waking up, patients who had been treated with this drug developed a tolerance to it and slipped back into their paperweight coma-like states. Right. And, you know, this is because dopamine is supposed to be released in kind of an as-needed basis um, for when you need to move at certain times to affect particular neurons and to steady your movements. But, you know, if you give it in such a way, you know, the way you give levodopa, you just give a slow, steady release, you saturate the receptor, deaden them. Uh, in some rare but terrible cases, you can also develop antibody to the um, synthetic so molecule. Now, and that's kind of it. We So we don't understand what caused the disease. We don't really understand how it progresses. We still don't really understand enough about it to treat it. We're giving you a lot of nothing this week. Yeah, <laughs> but I do kind of want our listeners to understand what some medical mysteries are like, is that, you know, in biology, especially in medical science, we're still at this stage where we can describe and we can make correlations, but we can't consistently, the way that you can, for instance, in physics, just drop an equation of, okay, if you have this plus this plus this, then you will get that. There are still wonderful horizons for us to pursue in you know medical science and biology. And the fact that, Josh, we're still evolving and the microbes are still evolving, and this is all like a moving target and a moving picture, means that we can discover new things all the time. But um, a little more cool, you know, diseases can also disappear, which is kind there's of your There's your optimist-pessimist kind of nice thing. You're, yeah. you're like, diseases can just disappear. And I'm like, yeah. diseases just disappear. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And now it doesn't mean we can just wait for things to burn out because it may take, you know, 30% of 50% of the human population with it, which is way not good. And also because it always tends to take the most vulnerable of us, people with malnutrition, the poor, the very old, the very showed up. We don't know why disease left. We don't know why. That is not... That is not a comforting thought to me. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but as we learn more and more, and especially as we have techniques like our our friend, you know, Felix Stern had, which are preservation of uh, specimens and the ability to run tests on tissues that we didn't have before. That's a really, really so, wonderful. If we keep doing what we're doing, in the end, I think we'll about forty percent of those affected <laughs> died. And that's right off the, some of them right off the bat because this paralysis would affect their breathing too. So they would die of respiratory failure in an era before we had ventilators and intubation. 20% of those who suffered survived, but were known as bellids and confined to the rest of their life in institutions. 26% mostly recovered, but with these long-term Parkinson-like issues and about 14% made full recoveries, all of which, again, we don't know why for any of those. And this disease, although it was huge from 1916 through the roaring 20s, gradually disappeared during the 30s, and the last reported case was in 1940 with sequela from the or effects of the disease seen for years after that. 
now we just see sporadic cases here and there. And, you know, that Oxford, when he was studying in 2004, found only 20 cases over who knows how long a time period. And many of the great neurologists of the early 20th century really cut teeth on this epidemic, trying to figure it out. All of them thought it was related to the flu, but without brain imaging or sophisticated blood tests, they could really only offer learned guesswork. That said, if you ever want educated guesswork, a neurologist is the person you should be going to. They are some of the best guessers out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although, I just a, a little brag, pediatric infectious diseases. And an infe- and infectious it did demonstrate that an infectious disease could lead to not only neurologic consequences, but also behavioral and psychiatric changes. And this is important because even today, we're still kind of hypothesizing mm-hmm. that there may be an infectious origin for other neuro diseases like multiple sclerosis. And that could involve cytomegalovirus or Santosh, your favorite, toxoplasma in schizophrenia. That's true. Yeah, we're finding all these little connections. Here's know, the other cool thing. We disease. talked a ton about you know, Parkinsonism and its ties to this disease and the discoveries it led to, but we didn't really talk about sleep. Because the clinical and neuropathologic study of this sleepy sickness brought to light the correlation between hypothalamic lesions and sleep disorders, as well as contributing to basal ganglia and movement disorders. And the most common form, like usually the people would be diagnosed about average two to five years after the episode of acute sleepy sickness. But the sleep symptoms were what really interested Von Economo and other researchers as we knew nothing about the brain's sleep centers. So it allowed him to localize the lethargic symptoms to the posterior wall of the third ventricle of the brain near the, near the area that helps to control eye movements. And he traced the insomnia, which was only in about 10% of cases, more anteriorly to the lateral walls of the third ventricle. That's a lot of anatomy I just threw at you. But the important thing is we started learning what parts of your brain controlled sleep and wakefulness. And this confirmed the existence of a sleep regulating center or more actively an arousal center that works to keep the brain awake. And it's thought that damage to this region is what causes a lot of these symptoms. So we don't know how it gets there, but we can be reasonably sure that this section of the brain is what's damaged. And because of that, this section of the brain is involved in sleep. Uh, It's, you know, this is the old lesional way that we've mapped a lot of the brain. Um, You know, we found lesions in the left side of the brain, you know, right by your ear, temporal lobe. And we found out that way that this is parts that control language. We call it Broca's area and Wernicke's area, um, areas to the back of the brain, which control largely control receptive vision, lesions to the right side of your head, which can you know, control how we coordinate information. So this lesional type of diagnostic way that we map the brain is some of the coolest stuff in the world. I absolutely love it. So that's it for this week's 80 plagues. But let's see. How's about a good travel tip? Something oh, Vienna yeah. for... Oh, yeah. Vienna Vienna's great. Absolutely. The first, of course, being the Pathology Museum in Vienna, which is the, Nare- the Narenturm, 
which is a former insane asylum that's now a pathological anatomy museum. Ooh, okay. So you got lots of stuff floating around in formaldehyde? It translates to Fool's Tower. Okay. And the circular building, which is called by locals the Pound Cake. Okay. Um, <laughs> because, of course, it is. has syphilitic skulls, uh, graphic wax displays of untreated STDs, and a recreated cabinet of wonders, as well as a hydrocephalic skeleton. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a small museum, but a nice one. Uh, Even creepier is the Criminal Museum, which is a museum devoted to historical Viennese murders. So for those of you who like, you know, those murdery podcasts, it's in the Soap Boiler's house, dates back to 1685, and it's a 324-year-old home with 20 rooms about crime and murder with, you know, counterfeit money, lockpicking, brothels. But the informational signs are all in German. So they're like, you won't be able to read anything. But it is supposedly a really, really cool museum. Then, of course, there's the Imperial Crypt of the Habsburgs, the ruling family, a lot of Memento Mori sculptures. Mm -hmm. And finally, a crypt. The Stevensdom Crypt that holds royal <laughs> intestines and thousands of skeletons. And I like where they say in my friends, like, surprisingly few visitors opt to enter the crypt. Uh, and I'm like, really? Why? What? <laughs> Could it be because of the creepiness? Yes. I thought it was because one of the jars on a visceral fluid broke and leaked 200-year-old intestinal you know, droppings onto the floor and a stink was apparently so awful it took like two days before someone would go down to even try to clean. You can get guided tours, but the crypt is open to the public on the long night of churches. So Vienna has a lot of skeleton-related stuff. And that's the kind of thing that, uh, this is the environment that Von Economo was living in when he made these discoveries. <laughs> very, very so appropriate. That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever podcasts are downloaded. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to resources we used recently in the show. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all my co-hosts and our theme music is composed by rachel leisure and until next time as always happy travels bye guys Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 